Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chandler. So, uh, Derek, there are two things that are happening today that have never happened in the history of this podcast. And, w- and what are those? Well, number one, Anna has never left the two of us all by ourselves <laughs> to conduct an interview. Um, it, it might be the first and only. <laughs> that remains to be seen. Number two, I am also quite sure this is the first all-male Food and Faith podcast that we've ever had happen. I don't know what that means. I'm just saying it's the first time it's happened. Hmm, yeah, she might not let that happen again. Either. I'm pretty sure she will. <laughs> so, um, but nevertheless, looking forward uh, to this podcast today. And uh, wherever you are listening, whenever you are listening, we are grateful that you are listening. And we are grateful to welcome the Reverend Michael Malcolm to the podcast today. Michael, it's a joy to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. So just as a way of introduction, um, the Reverend Michael Malcolm is the founder and executive director of the People's Justice Council and Alabama Interfaith Power and Light, and is also a licensed and ordained United Church of Christ minister. This plays to the fact that slowly and surely I'm trying to make this a UCC-centric podcast, but don't tell anybody else. So we are grateful to have you on. He is also the former senior pastor of Rush Memorial Congregational UCC in Atlanta, Georgia. He is also the environmental justice representative for the Southeast Conference of the United Church of Christ. He's currently co-chairing the Building Power from the Grassroots Task Force with Climate Action Network International and the co-chair of the Environmental Justice Working Group for the Southeast Climate and Energy Network. In other words, you go to a lot of meetings and do a lot of stuff, and we are really grateful for the work that you do. And so, again, thank you so much for for bringing your perspective and expertise to our podcast, and we're looking forward to having a conversation today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we want to begin, as we always do, with asking you, what is your geography? What are the uh, places, the land, the food, the culture that has shaped you, that have made you who you are? Yeah, so um, my geography at this moment is uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. However, that's not where I was born and raised. I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I grew up in a predominantly Black family. Um, so we had the traditional down south uh, cuisine. Um, we we didn't realize at that time, however, that it was shaped out of a sense of scarcity and poverty. And, and so I'm, I'm appreciative for uh, being on this uh, broadcast because it gives an opportunity to reach into that history uh, and. and to really delve in and see it for what it is now that I have a better awareness of what was actually taking place. So tell me a little bit, as somebody who's from the Mid-Atlantic, share with me a little bit, what is the difference? What are some of the cultural differences from going from Atlanta to Birmingham, like Georgia to Alabama? Well, you know, I can't say culturally that there's a huge difference because it is all down south. Mm-hmm. There is a, a small town uh, feel uh, here in, in Birmingham versus Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Atlanta is uh, more of a metropolis. Uh, it's a southern metropolis. Now, I've had an opportunity 
to go to other metropolises such as New York and uh, even Washington, D.C. And, uh, and so when I go to other places and see their, uh, what they would call their city, uh, our cities compel in comparison. Uh, however, uh, when it comes down to the feel of being in the South, I don't think that there's too much difference. Um, now, I will say, as far as uh, progression is concerned, uh, Atlanta is light years ahead of uh, Birmingham, uh, and Birmingham is chasing, which is, is actually scary when you think about it, because with Atlanta, although it's a very progressive city, not all in that demographic uh, progress the same. And so you see, even in the progression in Birmingham, those communities that are being left out, who still suffer from uh, food sovereignty issues, who still suffer from undue energy burdens or uh, overburden uh, of energy uh, impacts. Uh, you, you see the devastation of, of climate uh, directly impact certain communities um, and disproportionately impact certain communities. You see the poverty that exists because of the utilities uh, being uh, located in, in black and brown and indigenous and poor white and rural communities and robbing them of resources, both intangible resources as far as uh, their land use uh, and being able to even be resourceful of, in their own, with their own land and growing their own food because now the grounds are polluted. But also uh, they're being robbed in the aspect of uh, tax subsidies and, and being able to reinvest in the communities. So uh, there's a, a huge injustice when it comes down to uh, the conditions in which uh, my brothers and my sisters and my fellow humans in, in our communities exist. Can you describe um, one of the things we've loved about this podcast and one of the things we enjoy telling is um, there, there's a lot of us who started off in ministry. We wanted to serve the church. We wanted to serve our communities. Um, and then we found ourselves knee deep in soil. And so and and that journey is, is diverse. Um, it has looked very different for very for different pe pe people. And so what was your journey from you know, from feeling a call to ministry to serving your community? And how did you end up doing environmental and food justice? I, I like to tell this story because it pays homage to one of my heroes in the faith as well as in the movement, uh, which is uh, Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley. Uh, Ger Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley is the chair of the board for uh, Interfaith Power and Light, uh, but he's also a personal and dear mentor of mine. And uh, Reverend Dr. Gerald Durley said this when I first felt this call to be in this, uh, in this aspect of ministry. Uh, he said, how can I preach to them in the pulpit, shout them in my pews, but they can't breathe out in public. And, and that in itself just, I mean, it, it compelled me, it quickened me even, uh, and compelled me to get into this movement because I saw that we miss a huge part of ministry in ignoring the daily life of the people we serve. And I, I saw in that 
we have a tendency, or we do well rather, with looking up. So our worship services are spectacular. We we do good worship, and 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 I'll I'll speak. Uh, so the black church experience that I've experienced in my lifetime, listen, man, I grew up Pentecostal holiness. We shouted from the time we got in. And when I say shouted, I mean, we, we screamed and hollered and yep. we danced. And man, you mm -hmm. talking about some showing up sweating and snotting all over the place. <laughs> I'm telling you, we did it and we did it large and they're still doing it and doing it large. However, from the time we left the sanctuary to the time that we walked to our cars to go to our various destinations, many of us didn't bother to even look around us in that moment to see the communities that we worship in. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so our communities laid waste. God's house mm -hmm. laid waste while we went to our completed and plush homes. I think I think somewhere in scripture it talks about that. You um, might be so, right. I, I don't know. Oh no. I don't know at all, but I, I know a little bit. And, and, and I'm saying uh that I, I noticed that there was a huge discrepancy and it called me to get into this work. And I was still pastoring at the time and this work took over the uh, parish ministry aspect. And I just saw this fully as ministry and still do. So I, I want to, um, Sam, I'm going to bump up a question that I had here. Because um, I want to drill down on that a little bit. I also raised in a Pentecostal church, also raised in the Black church. Um, never once heard a sermon on climate change. Never once heard a sermon on the environment. Um how and and with all of the issues of justice in in the black community how do you because you speak of environmental justice and climate change as our number one issue with all the issues in the black community how do you bump up climate change and environmental justice as that number one issue yeah so let me let me digress um I don't see climate change and environmental justice as our number one issue. In our society, our number one issue is racial injustice. Mm. All of the other things, all of the other injustices are exacerbated from its foundation, which is racial injustice. Mm. And so if we could solve the racial injustice issue, if we would even be willing to address the racial injustice issue, I believe that we could deal with the other issues. If we could stop the pollution in black, brown, indigenous, and poor white and rural communities, we can heal the planet. If you look at it when coronavirus first, and we went on lockdown, there were places that had never seen daylight or seen the air, uh, uh, sky in some people's lifetime that it cleared up. So, so what I'm saying is the planet can take care of itself. We need to help the people. And if we continue to ignore the disparities in certain communities because they don't look like us or because we've been taught that they are irrelevant or that we've been given this myth and believe this myth, 
that somehow these people can take more than other people can. Until we equally distribute land use, then we can we will continue to have these problems. And if we really look at uh, the irregularities and or disproportionate land impacts, we know it's, it's uh, driven by consumerism. So we would then curve our behaviors and all of it falls in place, but we've got to solve this issue of othering the other. I hope, I, I'm sorry if I went the long way around. No, 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 that was not, not, not at all, not at no, all. Yeah. That, that's I, exactly I, where it needed to go. Yeah, and so for me, environmental injustice has everything to do with racial injustice. In fact, if you look at the history of environmental injustice and Sam, you appreciate this because I'm gonna help us to be even more UCC centric. <laughs> there uh, we go. When we when when environmental injustice or environmental justice came to the forefront, it came to the forefront based on a, a, um, a report that the UCC published back in 1987. Reverend Dr. Benjamin Chavis, uh, uh, Sister Vernice uh, Miller uh, Travis. Uh, uh, Travis Miller, um, as well as others, came together and they found out, and they did a, a survey on um, land use and waste, and they found out that the bottom line or the co most common factor for uh, disproportionate land use and hazardous waste uh, facilities had to do with Black communities. They were disproportionately located in black communities. And here's the thing, it didn't matter the income. That was what was crazy. Wow. You would think that it was poor, just poor black communities yeah. maybe, or even rural black communities. No, middle-class black communities have also, if you are black five to one, you you are located near a hazardous waste facility mm. or some, some industrial, pollution and it doesn't matter the income. Again, we've got to solve one issue and address that one issue. And if we ignore that one, you can't have environmentalism without dealing with environmental justice. But understand that the term that was used in that time was environmental racism. Mm -hmm. It was then changed to environmental justice because people weren't comfortable with environmental racism. Hmm. Now we've gone from environmental justice because people weren't comfortable with that to, to climate justice. And so each I, time you oh, move, God. you move the resources from the people that are actually, uh, that have, the, uh, that are directly impacted. Each time you change the terms, you move the, you move the resources because you move the focus. So I just want to I just want to shine a light on this because I think this is this is that statement you just made, I think, is one of the more important things I've heard as we've done these interviews. So you, so we always and, and speaking speaking as a white person, one of them, one of them, one of the stories we always tell is that 
racism would be solved if we would just, you know, if 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 we could just improve the economics, you know, if if, if there was simply more money, all that kind of stuff, we could sort this out. But you're saying that economics, that finances make no difference in how environmental injustice affects black, brown, indigenous and minority communities at all. No, whatsoever. Yeah, if uh, Reverend, uh, not Reverend, <laughs> I, I'm laughing because Dr. Bullet would probably kill me if he heard me. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Robert Bullard, uh, who's considered an, uh, the father of environmental justice, uh, writes on it um, in several different works. Uh, and he talks about how uh, this, how environmental justice or environmental injustice um, impacts those who are black, and it has any, nothing to do with income. And and that just, like I said, that torpedoes, you know, a story that we that we regularly hear. Um, and so it does speak to these aren't just economic issues, though economics are certainly involved, you know, and we can talk about that, you know, later. But that that racism is really at the heart of so much of what we're dealing with environmentally. And that is, that is profound. Um, I, I mean, Sam, I understand that racism is economical. Oh, it, oh, and, and it absolutely, that, <laughs> yeah, good question. Yeah. yeah, but we often want to, want to separate these things. Well, there are economic issues over here and there are environmental issues over here. And, and we deal with these things in pockets or in pieces. And you're saying that all these things and, and, and anyone who's involved in, in, food and environmental justice discovers these overlaps. Um, and you're simply reminding us of the fact that injustice, I mean, it's the words of, M of MLK, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. These things are always overlapped and they are always intersectional. And that, yeah. and that really seems to be a hallmark of your ministry, this intersectionality. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I really believe in order to heal, you've got to look at the whole person. And I think that we would all benefit from interdisciplinary or an interdisciplinary approach to injustice issues. Uh, um, Reverend uh, Leo Woodbury, who is who is my I call him my EJ pastor. He is like he is my dearest mentor, my primary mentor in this work. And um, when I first got into this work heavily, he, he took me on the Justice First tour, where we went throughout the Southeast uh, and wind up going throughout the South and even nationally with it, um, where we, we talked to different organizations, different groups who worked on different uh, injustice issues. So we'd have LGBTQIA uh, groups we'd have uh, environmental groups. We'd have uh, groups that worked on um, uh, criminal justice issues. We'd have groups that worked on economic justice issues uh, or community development. And, and, and we bring them all together and we start having conversations on what it looks like for all of us to operate outside of silos support one another and take a holistic look at uh, justice issues to see how it connects and impacts so we can help each other to fight. And I think that is what we need to do. And, and what was amazing about that and what, what it taught me is the, the uh, validity 
of faith communities and that faith voice in that conversation. What faith does and what faith leaders do is they take that conversation and move it to an arena that says, is this right or wrong? And it moves outside of whether it's politically expedient. It even moves outside of the whether uh, of the arena of it being economically feasible. And it asks the simple question: Is it right or wrong? And that's what we come in as faith leaders. That's what we come in as communities of faith because we are supposed to hold that that mantle, and we're supposed to hold that measuring rod and say, well, is this according to the way that spirit set up or God set up uh, versus is this the way that we just want to be? And, and if I understand the prophetic tradition, it call, it always called uh, out us operating according to just the way that we want to be. And that's a that's a good segue into interfaith power and light because that that is a faith group and a group of faith leaders that is that is bringing this to the forefront. Um, we've had some IPL folks on the show before. Would you tell us a little bit more about what interfaith power and light does, what strategy is, mission, and and those sorts of things for those who might not be familiar? So interfaith power and light is a is a play on on words actually. Uh, it talks about the power and light that exists within us, but it also talks about our connection with power and light. And we believe that you can get everything that um, you need as far as your resources are concerned from nature, uh, from what uh, was originally created. We also believe that we are called to be uh, caretakers of creation. Uh, and, and so uh, in that, we look at creation care as being foundational for us. Uh, and, and one of the ways that we do it, it well, well, we do it many different ways because we aren't a monolith. Everybody's autonomous, just like the UCC. And so <laughs> different people set up different programs. Uh, we are interfaith, so we don't represent one faith voice. We represent many faith voices. God is still speaking. Uh, I'm just saying, I'm trying to help you out saying on the kids. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Anna's going to be so, so mad when she hears this. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the programs, uh, uh, one of the main things that we drive is looking at um, healthier and safer uh, energy alternatives, such as solar, such as wind. Uh, we also, uh, and so we advocate for those. We also advocate against policies that we know do harm to the planet. Uh, we advocate for uh, electric cars. Uh, we're, we're advocating for stricter emissions. We advocate against an administration that has rolled back uh, uh, protections or regulations uh, with uh, impunity. Uh, so these are the, some of the things that, that we, we do. And so interfaith power and light, and just so, cause I know we've interacted, you know, Derek and I have interacted with, with Maryland, um, you know, and I know there are, there are groups around the country. And so for those who want to sort of research, you know, their own local IPL. Um, so, so you're saying that it's, 
it's it's various clusters. I mean, is there a relationship between them, or yeah. you know, is it or is it you know just kind of ev- ev- everybody on their own sort of thing? Like, how is IPL set up so that folks can figure out what they're doing? So, so uh, you can reach out to uh, your local IPL by going to interfaithpowerandlight.org. Uh, you can go there and and um, find out if you have a state chapter for uh, Interfaith Power and Light. Uh, in the Southeast, we have the Southeast Faith Leader Network, where uh, the different uh, state out IPLs throughout the Southeast have joined together in a collaborative effort uh, to build out interfaith power and light throughout the states and do this work together. Um, and, and so you can, as, as faith leaders and communities of faith, you can easily, if you're in the Southeast, join up with the uh, Southeast Faith Leader Network. You don't have to be a part of your state uh, IPL. However, we would love for you to be a part of your state IPL uh, mm-hmm. to be a part of Southeast Faith Leader Network. Um, and, and so that's what we have in the Southeast, but there are other collaboratives that are also uh, formed throughout other regions as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I heard you heard you sharing um, is a lot of advocacy work, you know, doing a lot of work, um, you know, around a lot of different things. And one of the things that you did mention is advocating against policy, um, at, well, advocating for or against policy, interacting with our government agencies and whether those decisions are national or local, um, you're deeply involved with that. And I think it's an interesting thing because we're struggling with in this country still, the relationship between politics and our faith communities. And you are a group of faith communities who are who are working in the arena of politics, maybe not necessarily, not, 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 not necessarily advocating for parties, but advocating for policy. Um, how do you how do you walk that tightrope in a country that is very uncomfortable, or at at the very least has a lot of different answers to how how we navigate faith and politics? Um, this this seems like one of the really interesting places because it's interfaith. It seems like we come up with that IPLs come up with some really interesting answers to this, where our local con- congregations may struggle with it a little bit more. There you go. I'm a fan <laughs> of hip hop, right? And, and, and so uh, one of my hip hop uh, legends is uh, Biggie Smalls, uh, Notorious B.I.G. And in one of his songs, he said, I came through the door, I kicked in the door with my 4-4. And, and, and that's how I do it. I, I don't try to differentiate and all that. When it's wrong, I'm calling out wrong. It doesn't matter who party it is. Uh, I was I was taught by one of another one of my my mentors, uh, Nathaniel Smith. He's the uh, chief equity officer and founder of uh, Partnership for Southern Equity. And he taught me this. He said, uh, uh, demonstration without legislation only leads to frustration. Now he wasn't the first one to say it, but he was the first one to say it to me and it stuck. And, and, And and what, what that says to me is we have to be in these conversations because if we are shepherds, then we are to protect our flocks. If we're protecting our flocks, we've got to protect them on a policy level. When I look at the uh, social justice movement, 
with Dr. Martin Luther King, who was already invoked once. Dr. King did it this way. He said, first we negotiate, then we demonstrate, then we resist. When he got angry, when he saw injustice, he didn't take it to the streets first. He went to legislation first. He said something like this, and I always get this um, uh, quote mixed up, so I, I just like to paraphrase it. He said, I can't make law, I can't make you make laws to make you love me, but I can make you pass laws to keep you from lynching me. As faith leaders, we've got to, pay, to advocate for those laws that uh, keep our policymakers protecting us as people, mm. to force them to protect us. That's our call. Yeah. Nah, and and we have and at times we have lost that call. Um, and it gets forgotten um, at times. And so that constant call back to protecting the flock is a powerful call um, for all of our faith communities and wherever we are, protect the flock at all costs. Um, and I'm wondering what unique challenges or opportunities are presenting themselves in Alabama. You know, we 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 like talking about geography, um, and we certainly our listeners certainly will be aware of larger national issues, but what is presenting itself on the ground where you are that you're currently working with? Uh, so one of the things that I tried to do here with Alabama Interfaith Power and Light is match the model of Interfaith Power and Light and go into communities of faith and uh, connect with uh, churches and, and other houses of worship and to do uh, uh, inspections for um, weatherization and, and and trying to lower their energy bills and energy consumption, and, and that's all well and fine to even do try to do some projects on solar, and that was good as well. But what I realized in doing further investigation is one, uh, solar and alternative energy has been so demonized by utilities here um, that people look at it as, as either being gimmicky or as being um, something that's irrelevant or even evil. Uh, and, and so one, I had to work on education uh, with letting people know. But secondly, the utilities are so in the pocket of our policymakers here that uh, they don't pass laws that protect people and, and afford them. We have some of the cheapest rates in Alabama, uh, in the nation, uh, but we have some of the highest energy bills in the nation. Uh, yeah, we have some of the cheapest rates as far as energy rates are concerned, but the highest utility bills. So now you look at it and you, you wonder why that is. Well, then you start seeing that you have a lot of older houses here, a lot of dilapidated houses here. Uh, the demographics here are older people. Uh, in Birmingham in particular is predominantly black. Uh, and, and because of the way that policy is set up, they have no uh, programs that uh, assist people with weatherization, particularly those in vulnerable communities. We started up, and, and when I looked at it, 
I saw that this was throughout the South. But in, in, in Alabama, we started up energizing Alabama for energy justice. And part of that is helping others, uh, helping our most vulnerable in this moment to pay utility bills, uh, to get their utility bills paid. So they don't necessarily, they are left with an option rather of if they're going to go out and put themselves in harm way during this pandemic. But also we are uh, working with uh, faith leaders to begin advocating for uh, policies and programs that protect our people, such as coming up with a statewide uh, weatherization program. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're doing this not just in Alabama, we're doing this throughout the South. So mm -hmm. we're doing Energizing the South for Energy Justice. We just had uh, Energizing the South for Energy Justice virtual summit where we had a lot of the IPLs as well as some national faith leaders to come together and uh, talk, and we and we had faith leaders throughout the southeast, excuse me, or throughout the south that came together to talk about um, energy justice in the south and what that would look like and what we need to do as uh, communities of faith to advocate and help our communities as well as what it would look like to start up a weatherization program for the communities that we actually worship in um, to uh, as, as a ministry. Uh, for our churches. I think it's so important that we we think about our actual church facilities, our actual, our actual church buildings as being kind of part of this prophetic witness about, about climate change, about environmental racism. That's incredibly important. Yeah. Um, so alongside with Interfaith Power and Light, you also are part of um, leading the People's Justice Council. Can you tell us what that organization is about and how it got started? Yeah, so um, I founded the People's Justice Council right as at the time that I started with uh, as the executive director of the Alabama Interfaith Power and Light. And part, part and parcel, it was to um, not limit the work that, that I do environmentally um, and, and ministry-wise to just Alabama. And so Alabama Interfaith Power and Light, I thought was a little limiting just in its name. Uh, and I had an idea of forming uh, a group of, of uh, people that could come together again with that interdisciplinary uh, study or interdisciplinary approach uh, to look at injustice issues uh, in communities, uh, environmental injustice issues in communities. And, and so um, I started that up and, and I'll be honest with you, it took off way more than I ever thought in a that it would in this amount of As time. the Holy Spirit will do. <laughs> I, you know, and, and, and that's all I could do, uh, Reb. I can only just say, hey, God, you got it because I can't do nothing with this. <laughs> True. <laughs> And so, um, so how does um, Interfaith Power and Light and the People's Justice Council, um, it seems that they work very closely together. And maybe that's because you have a foot in both organizations. Um, yeah. But I just wonder how, how IPL um, interacts with People's Justice Council in an interdisciplinary way. Like what does that overlap look like inside of Pe People's Justice Council? Yeah, so with uh, Interfaith Power and Light, again, that's more state specific 
and and more and more uh, focused on energy, uh, energy burdens, uh, energy justice. Uh, with however, with uh, the People's Justice Council, that's more broad, and and so I do national and international work uh, through through People's Justice Council, and, and uh, a huge part of that is. Uh, looking at uh, various policies, both global as well as domestic policies uh, that affect community and, and being able to consult and advise as well as organize uh, around those uh, policies, whether it be uh, to advocate for or against. So I, I guess I need to add, I'm sorry, y'all. No, no, I, right. I, I guess I need to add to that. I'm not only doing this work but there, I also, you know, advocate and provide space for others to do this work. It's one thing uh, to hear me talk about other people and what they're going through. It's something direct, uh, something altogether different when you can hear directly from those people. Yeah, that's incredibly important. So um, we like to end every uh, interview with this question of what is in this moment in in this uh, this moment in November of, of 2020 what is giving you hope um, not not sort of an airy uh, fantasy hope but like a resilient hope that keeps you getting out of bed every morning so I, I don't really look at what gives me hope uh, I, I wasn't gonna I know you gave me that question ahead of time <laughs> And, and, but Do with it what gonna, you want. Like, I wasn't going to spoil it for your head. I just want, <laughs> want to get to it and then make you say, oh, Lord, did I mean to invite him? <laughs> no, seriously, I, I don't I don't really uh, measure hope. Uh, I, I will say that looking at the uprisings, being involved in the, uh, in the youth climate uh, advocacy group, um, the young people give me hope. Uh, I measure what gives me courage. Mm. Hope, hope, hope keeps me uh, in a place of contemplation. It, it keeps me in a place uh, of being stale and, and, and affords me an opportunity to sit back and, and, and hope and wish that something will change. Courage, however, gives me a, a, a prompts me to action. It propels me to do something about the situation uh, that I see myself in or I see others in. Uh, so what gives me courage is my faith. What gives me courage is not just my faith, but my experience as well. Growing up lower middle class in Atlanta, Georgia, seeing the environmental injustices, understanding what they are or what they were now versus how I knew them then, seeing the disinformation, uh, understanding the, the what's at play as well as what's at stake. Uh, that gives me courage to fight on. Uh, looking at my kids and realizing that at some point they may give me grandkids what, what life will my grandkids have? Mm. What life would my great grandkids have? Uh, 
it, it prompts me to fight for a better tomorrow. Listening and participating with the youth, giving them voice and, and leadership, that gives me courage because the young people have said, we've seen your past. We don't want it in our present mm. and we're gonna change it for our future. Mm. That gives me courage. It helps me to fight. Yeah. And, and that is a word for today. Um, we've asked this, we asked this hope question to everyone. And a lot of times it's like, yeah, I'm not sure where hope is coming from, but we keep, we keep going. Um, and I think you've given extraordinary voice to that. I feel like I went to church today, which I needed that <laughs> word. I needed that word in, in, in so many, in so many ways, um, encouraged to keep going. So Reverend, thank you. Um, we wanted to have you on um, because partially we want to advocate for you and want folks to be familiar with who you are, the work that you're doing and how and uh, and and have folks get excited and be courageous to join you in that work. So how how, how can folks interact with you, uh, interact with your organizations? Where can folks find you? They can learn more information and get involved. Well, uh, personally, you can always look me up, MT Malcolm um, at uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, as well as uh, Instagram uh, for my organization as uh, with People's Justice Council, as well as Alabama Interfaith Power and Light. Uh, please feel free to connect with us on our website. We're also on social media. Feel free to reach out to us that way. Um, if you want to, if, if you have any special requests, any conversations you want to have personally, info at the people's justice council.org feel free to email me uh i try to be pretty responsive i will say that i get a million and one calls and, and contacts a day uh so uh my assistant will <laughs> gladly connect us uh and be patient with me uh again listen i want to i want to uh while i have a moment uh say thank you for your invite thank you for uh, lifting up the voice of, of the people. Uh, thank you for connecting connecting uh, faith and justice. Uh, I appreciate you all. I appreciate your program and what you all are doing. And let's get it for the UCC. Amen to that, brother. <laughs> yes. I got Derek Maryland over here. I got UCC down here. Life is good for Sam right now. <laughs> So, but uh, but Michael, yeah, I mean, we have we have admired you from afar. Um, you know, I've had you know, I've I've been able to watch you inside of our denominational circles, um, and there was no way for us to continue going forward in these conversations without inviting you into this particular space. Um, and so, it has been an absolute joy to have 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 you with us today. So, thank you so much for making some time. Really do appreciate thank you, it, Sam. Hey, one last shout out. Uh, I want to say um, if if you all want to see about food sovereignty. Uh, issues and faith and um, want, want to get more involved in particular with uh, the African-American church community. Please feel free uh, to reach out and look up Green the Church. Uh, they are doing tremendous work throughout this nation. Uh, Reverend Dr. Um, Carroll is an amazing leader and they are doing amazing work. 
what what's what's the nature of green the church what are what are just kind of give us a broad broad strokes idea of what the kind of work they're doing yeah so green the church works uh predominantly with african-american communities they are connected with ipl as well uh is founder and executive director is reverend dr ambrose carroll uh, and they deal with food sovereignty um they are uh they deal with setting up green teams for your um, church. Uh, and they do a lot of education around issues that uh, directly affect uh, black communities, black churches uh, and the environment. Thank you. We almost went a full food and faith episode without talking about food. So uh... <laughs> I know that that's, look, that's why I, added that in and make sure I threw something in. <laughs> Appreciate you having our back like that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Tell. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.